0: Fox Roots podcast. This is Tumbles Flying Solo for the intro only. So not to worry, Cranky does come in for our interview with Frankie Wild. This is our second episode with Frankie talking about his Southwest bike touring trip as well as his Appalachian mountain bike touring trip. If you've not had a chance, go back and listen to the first episode. It kind of sets the stage for his adventures across America. But before we get into the episode, as usual, we're going to plug ourselves first. Please find us on the gram at rocks underscore and underscore roots underscore pod. We are also on TikTok, which a lot of those TikToks do cross over into Insta stories. That's rocks underscore roots underscore podcast. Let's see. We do have the YouTube channel, which I do upload all of our episodes onto YouTube as well. And finally, if you are listening to us, you're most likely listening to us on Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a note. Say hi. Leave us some stars. We always appreciate hearing from our listeners. And with that, without further ado, here is our second episode with Frankie Wild. Hello, Frankie. We're back for part two. Welcome back.
1: Thanks for having me back.
2: Welcome. So, last week, we talked about a dangerous situation that you were in, a situation that you actually thought was potentially deadly. So, many people would ask, why do it if you're going to get into those situations? And obviously, there is a reason. So, let's talk about some of the positives from that Minnesota to Washington trip. What were some of the highlights? Absolutely.
1: Yeah, there's there there's so many incredible experiences from that trip that that I I went into hoping to have and and many that I didn't know were coming. Um, one of the things, and and maybe depending on uh, how you grew up or where you live, this wouldn't seem exciting, but one of my goals was to uh, shoot a shoot a gun under a clear blue sky. Um, and I actually, about a week into the trip, got the opportunity to do that uh, with my one of my cousin's friend's parents. And that was, that was pretty cool, but that's almost the low end of the totem pole. A few days after, my cousin and I ran into each other in Badlands National Park. the One of the days that we were exiting, we ran into this really, really generous family who just struck up a conversation with us on the road and actually offered us a place to stay in Rapid City, South Dakota, which is where we were heading anyway, on our way towards Mount Rushmore. I I bring this family up uh, specifically because they afforded us an opportunity that I had not anticipated on the trip, which was about two weeks down the road, a high school friend of the mother from the family that we stayed with in Rapid City, South Dakota, who raised horses, as her profession took us out on her huge property to ride horses for the very first time. Um, and I got to experience a day as a ranch hand, shoveling shit in a stable and, uh, moving irrigation equipment, um, on alfalfa fields and riding a horse and eating, uh, eating tacos made with ground elk meat that she had shot. That's amazing. Um, yeah that was that was all a very, very cool experience and just and just one of so many uh probably the best fifteen minutes I've ever spent on any bicycle was descending well, I'm gonna have to look it up now. We got the opportunity to ride through Yellowstone National Park. among the amazing things that we did there was riding through a herd of buffalo that had decided to Camp and straddle the highway I, I, I'll never forget it I wish I had pictures or video of it And I don't My cousin and I have been riding all day Because if, if you've been there you know The park is enormous it's,
0: Yellowstone.
1: it's like 105 For miles months. from the northern To southern entrance So even in a car It's basically a day's drive Yep. The whole first uh, I, think, I think the first night we camped Right outside the park In uh, uh, the Tetons And then the first day in, we're riding pretty much sunrise to sunset. And at a certain point, we come up to a place where the traffic is dead standstill. And we don't know why. It could be a car accident. Who knows? Again, we have one of those wow moments. We come over a crest, and there is a massive herd of buffalo straddling both sides of the road. And my cousin and I, for weeks, have been told, do not approach wild buffalo. They are unpredictable. They can outrun you. They can fuck you up. Right, they we, you you could very easily get grievously injured. Yes. getting close to a I'm going to have to correct myself now a bison.
0: That's <laughs> right, they're not buffalo. Um,
1: and after hearing this, uh, we're now inching towards a pack of buffalo, and very carefully we threaded the needle, uh, going left and right as as there were as there were bison walking down the road. I guess just showing the cars who's boss and we would sort of sneak by one looking at it through the windows and everybody in this car would look at the Buffalo and and look at us, look at the Buffalo and look at us. And, um, to see wildlife completely defenseless that up close was a little scary, but it more than anything else, it was like, uh, it was like being in a time machine. It was, it was being in an environment that doesn't really exist anymore. Um, in many places and uh incredibly exhilarating in Yellowstone we went in a boiling river where where uh, natural hot springs fed into I think the Yellowstone river so a natural sauna which was fantastic how, how wildest... long
0: did you spend in Yellowstone uh, riding?
1: I want to say four days i think I think we were there four days um we ended up going up the east side of yellowstone so we did not see old faithful but we did see plenty of of, of wildlife up now I'm,
0: I'm not familiar with the geography of yellowstone at all is the east side of the park a little bit more remote than the west side or the southern end
1: to be honest with you i'd have to pull up a map i don't know uh we exited we exited into montana um at a, at a place called mammoth springs where there's sort of a, a bougie turn-of-the-century resort and yeah, beautiful Yellow, yellowstone is is some of the best unspoiled nature i've ever been in it is tremendously cold at night even during the summer that was the one place that i found myself wishing i had like proper proper cold weather clothes you know, i would wake up when I, in the first episode when i described not wanting to get out of my tent until the sun hit it the place that i think of first when I think of that moment of I'm not until the sun can touch me, I'm not leaving is Yellowstone national park. It is cold at night. Is that because Um, of the elevation or what? Okay.
2: Definitely elevation. Um, What is I'm asking off the top of your head, but what is just the average elevation in the park that you were at?
1: My guess would be probably most of, if not all of the park is, is, above a mile above sea level whatever road we i should have consulted quinn um i want to say we got up to about 90 93 9400 feet climbing wow. over uh one mountain pass um okay that's yeah. to sneeze at yeah, now, it's,
0: you felt colder in Yellowstone than you did in Glacier because I found the same thing when I was in Glacier that it during the daytime it would be in the upper seventies and then at night it would dip down to thirty five degrees.
1: I no, I agree. My experience, my experience of it was, and it must be, it might be humidity based. Mm. Was I was much colder at night in Yellowstone than I was in Glacier. That's fascinating. Um, I would say for me after maybe even above Yellowstone, I would say for me, in terms of a place that I am in awe of, that I still think about, not every day, but I mean, I think about these trips all the time. Glacier National Park. I didn't know that anywhere in America looked like that. You get, you know, you get up to the top of of Logan's Pass and you feel like you're in the Swiss Alps. It is completely surreal. Uh, I've never seen so many precious, beautiful Wild animals up close, as I have in Glacier. In in one day, within sixty minutes, I saw close enough to touch with my hands, though I didn't. Um, bighorn sheep, marmots, mountain goats, and then the following day, we saw a grizzly bear for breakfast. And the day after that, uh, my cousin, my cousin and I uh, uh, split split ways for the day. We took a rest day, and he went for a hike, and I ended up riding out of the park towards St. Mary and then up and back into the park to Manny Glacier and that was where I saw, not up close, but I saw uh, three moose just hanging out in the lake.
0: Now for those who don't know Glacier at all, the Going to the Sun Road is primarily an east-west road. Did you travel that entire road?
1: Yes. Um, Did you go from the east to
0: the west or
1: west? Yeah, we traveled east to west the climb, the climb going the opposite direction is, my understanding is that it's much longer.
0: Uh, it's like 15 that, miles.
1: Yeah, that, it, that it'll take like a skills, a really skilled cyclist anywhere between three and six hours. Mm. Um, I'd love to go back and try it someday. I'm glad I didn't have to on that bike. <laughs> um, yeah, but, but the, the going to the, will, we- say it again. It's like I was gonna say that's a decent
2: amount of weight to be climbing like that. Oh yeah, but but it meant you were you were
1: flying coming down. Yes, uh, coming, that was that was like an hour long descent where I just got to to sit back and do nothing while the bike did twenty five miles an hour. That's it great. Was, it was fantastic. I actually have some. There were a couple times during the trip that I, I brought a GoPro for. I, some of the more exciting descents, and that was one that I remembered. And the video is actually quite boring because I spend most of the time behind a car that won't go any faster despite my pleas. <laughs> um, but I, such a such a beautiful piece of road, and um, it's it's very easy to understand why the speed limits are so low because you really don't want to keep your eyes on the road. The the views there are absolutely majestic. Montana is a is a very special place.
0: Now, throughout all of your trips and what I appreciated actually the most from following you on social media was that you enjoyed talking to everybody and anybody you passed by, and you highlighted so many people on your social media, and you did mention in the last episode about the mayor that let you into the church for the night and another pastor that helped you out. Can you talk about some of the people that you came across on your trip?
1: Absolutely. You know, going into this experience, one of the things that I realized, I think that was really necessary to take advantage of it was um, I don't consider myself an introvert, but I definitely when I'm when I'm not around people that I'm familiar with can be a little shy. And I knew to I I knew that this was a good opportunity for me to try and improve my skill set in that respect. And so, anyone who had an interest in what I was doing, I was happy to talk to them for uh, as long as they liked. And if I needed help with anything, like storms trying to kill me in the middle of a flyover state, well, goddamn it, I was going to ask for help. Um, I was not going to let my ego get in the way. And one of the amazing things that 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 I think you find when you're when you're willing to take that time to not just go somewhere and see things and do things cuz i think it's very easy uh, for people to get caught up in traveling where they're just they're in their bubble they're somewhere else but they're in their bubble what i've really liked about bike touring is the opportunity to not just not just really see and touch and bask things but but to uh, but to you know to experience them on an interpersonal level and and for that you're talking to people you'll talk to people you don't know about just about anything. And that comes up a lot more in my subsequent trips because I was alone. Even though that
2: is a perfect segue, I'm going to pass it up. (laughs) I do want to mention what you're saying is also true for hiking. When you are out there on the trail with other hikers, normally in life when you meet someone, there's that moment of awkwardness. You're feeling each other out. What are you about? Um, They're figuring out, you're figuring out what they're about. They're trying to figure out what you're about. And you have to go through a whole introduction. When you meet someone on trail, you don't have to do that because the ice is already broken. It sounds like you experienced something similar, even though you didn't meet other people who were bike packing, people are interested. Like, what's all that shit on your bike? Like, why, where are you going? So the ice is already broken. Um, It kind of sounds similar to what we experience.
1: It, it definitely is. The, the type of riding I do, you're, you're, you know, with the exception of maybe a, a, a dirt trail here or a forest road here, you're always in public. And so you're always sort of at the mercy of do people want to interact with you? Because I, I, I can't ride away from you. If you want to say something, I will hear it. And um, you find people who notice you because you're an oddly dressed traveler on this bike that doesn't look like anything they've ever seen before, and they ignore you. And then sometimes you find people who are immediately like, "Hey, what's going on here? I'm going what, what are you doing, young man?" And I always loved those people. Something that I found funny at the end of at the end of my most recent trip um, was people would always. The first question everyone would always asks you is, "Where are you going? Where are you going?" And when you get really close to your destination, and they and then you ask them, and they ask you that, and then you tell them, you know, "Where are you going?" And you're in Marietta, Georgia. Oh, I'm going to Atlanta. They're always very disappointed. It's like you don't understand. It's been a whole thing. <laughs> this is the destination. I know it's normal for you, but this is this is this is a promised land for me. Going over a thousand miles so far. Right. But I think traveling the way I do, one of the things is and not, not to not to get too off topic. I think sometimes, you know, with the with the with the advents of television and the internet, we start to pigeonhole people very, very quickly based on where they live and what they look like and one of the things that i found out traveling in some states where you know potentially people may look or think different than i do or hobbies may be different than mine is that we've all got a lot more in common than we realize and you know in spite of whatever differences one you know i may have with other people oftentimes if we're in the same place we do have one big thing in common for example uh, if you're in a national park and someone else is there, you both know that nature is king. Um, and I really, really like that. Um, and I found, I found strangers in national parks to be among the most generous people I've met because we both recognize without having said anything that we are we are among majesty. That yeah, is- that's what I was saying. The,
2: yeah. uh, you know, you have that awkward moment of breaking the ice. It's already done for you. Yeah so yeah absolutely like generally the only thing that really divides people is preconceptions and politics and when you remove that people generally get along fine we are social creatures um all right so let's get back to when as soon as we finish an adventure in the car or sometimes even before we're done like the last day or whatever it's like well what are we doing next like was when we it did like,
0: Cascade Port, or we're like when are we doing the next one as we're going up the mountain
2: yes was it like that for you when did you know you were going to the southwest um and how soon after your first trip did you start planning
1: your second um I would say two weeks to a month before we had wrapped up in Seattle I definitely started to have those thoughts every day about this doesn't end here. What are we doing next? Where can I go? What's the plan? Because one of the things I recognized as the trip was coming to a close was, Oh, if you don't, if you don't get back out on the road again soon, you're going to, you're going to lose your mind. Yeah. I I have a dovetail question. One of the things
2: that's very common amongst long distance hikers is what they call post-trail depression. Yeah. Absolutely love it. Out there every day is in a drone adrenaline rush. And then when oh, yeah. you get home, it's your nine to five job. No one understands what the hell you did.
1: You have trouble interacting with people. I yeah, I would say I would say with every trip there's there's definitely a, a, a bit of a challenging come down. With the first one I was very fortunate in that uh, I came back to a job, which wasn't always the case and immediately when i came home from seattle i started to think about okay uh when's the best time to take off work where do you start where do you finish and i started to do research about you know the cheapest way to get myself and my bike across the country and very quickly i found out okay amtrak is very bike friendly where can we take uh where can we take an amtrak train to that's not going to be cold at the beginning of january um because for me the the type of work that I do, nothing happens between the first of the year and about the middle of March. And I decided on Austin, Texas, because that seemed like a that's that was that seemed to be a, a city that was more interesting more interesting for me to start than San Antonio. But it probably would have made no difference. And I decided the first thing I wanted to do was visit. Uh, I believe it. I believe it is the southernmost national park in the contiguous United States. Cause that dry Tortugas is not, that's all Florida. That's not, that's not in Florida. Eventually after, after just weeks of coming home from work and doing research, 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 going on Facebook, asking fellow cyclists uh, you know, reading, reading all sorts of guides, reading, uh, reading journals that, that, that cyclists had published uh, after a number of weeks, I round up with, I'm going to ride from Austin, Texas, all the way out to California, right before I get to San Diego, I'm going to cross the border into Mexico, ride to a city an hour South of the border called Ensenada. I figured I would stay there two or three days and then I would come home and spend a few days in San Diego and I would do it all alone. How many miles total? That trip ended up being about twenty five hundred. I think the I think the actual route was twenty two hundred, twenty three hundred because of because of some complex issues that I that I didn't foresee. Traveling through oil country in West Texas, there was a detour, and then you know, e- even on rest days, if you're on a bicycle and you want to get to a restaurant or whatever, you're putting miles on the bike. So it ended up being yep. about twenty five hundred miles in seven weeks. Hmm.
0: Wow. Now, as we all know, the Southwest is very desolate. It um, is. What was your experience being so isolated out there?
1: I remember thinking the big challenge of this trip um, compared to the last trip, it wasn't going to be the cold weather. It wasn't going to be the really ambitious itinerary because I had planned out my days pretty well mm-hmm. in terms of what, what sort of mileage I would need to do from day to day. It was going to be being alone because it was something I was not very comfortable with when I was younger. There were many opportunities in my life that I know I had turned down opportunities to go see bands I liked and all sorts of things because I was not comfortable doing things by myself. Mm -hmm. And it was on this trip that I decided, this is a trait that you really wanna rid yourself of as best you can. And why not, maybe maybe the best opportunity to do it is to do something that you now know you love so much. And it worked out really well Uh, because Texas is incredibly remote. I rode, in the first seven days of the trip, I rode 520 miles, which may very well end up being the most I ever ride in seven days on a bicycle ever. On the end of the seventh day, I rode into Big Bend National Park after the park offices had closed. And I think as I told you last week, I had to wild camp for the very first time Mm -hmm. um, having never gotten any training and without a permit. So no one knew where I was. I I went to bed that night in big Bend, knowing absolutely nobody knows where you are. Your cell phone doesn't work and no one can, and you don't have a, you don't have a a PLB. So it's very liberating. I, I, it, it it was, it was another, it was another one of those sort of white knuckle you're, you're going to, you're going to do it experiences. And I remember I just just sort of trying to think back on everything my cousin had told me, and it was like, okay, you're not going to cook tonight, and if you gotta if you gotta use the bathroom, you're going to use it down way downwind from the tent, and the only thing that's going to be in the tent is your body. Everything else is going to there was thank God there was a bear box, and and I and I uh, chained the bike to the bear box, and I woke up in the middle of the night and heard animals, and didn't come out of my tent until the sun hit it. And it was the most grateful to be alive I'd been since Murdo. <laughs> so I'm sorry if I'm confused.
2: So there's a bear box. So it was a site. So when you say wild camping, I'm a little confused because what do you mean by that exactly? What exactly oh, is this? Oh, setup?
1: May- oh maybe, may- maybe I'm wrong here. Okay, so this was a backcountry campsite, was my understanding. Okay. Um. So there was a bear box, but. That was it. There it was, was no not
0: necessarily animal. stealth. It was a dedicated. Okay, that was site. my
1: confusion. I did stealth camp later in the trip, uh, okay, along the side of the highway in Texas, and then again in uh, Arizona. But this was in this was in Big Bend National Park, and it was a it was a backcountry campsite. So yeah, I guess I guess I wasn't I was in a place where you're allowed to camp, but you do need a permit. Okay, um, and I guess yeah, I'm sorry. I was just so foregone
0: the permitting.
1: I'm not that big a badass.
0: I'm going to tell on you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Told the ranger the next day, and they were like, we're going to keep this between us. And, um, you're
0: such a good guy, you telling no, the
1: ranger. I was, I, I was <laughs> uh, you know, I felt like, first of all, I wanted to tell somebody I'd done it because I felt, I felt pretty accomplished um, <laughs> that I hadn't been, you know, attacked by javelinas or coyotes or a bear. I needed somebody to know, and seeing as my phone didn't work, this was the first person I got to talk to. Hey, Mr. Ranger.
2: Good for you. That's usually, awesome. unless you're a dick, usually they, they're... Unless you're a dick or you meet a ranger that's a dick, they're not super crazy about it. And if you're friendly and you're respecting them and respecting the land, yeah, they'll yeah. work with you. Yeah. We've had similar experiences.
1: Yeah, credit credit where credit's due. The uh, rangers of Big Ben National Park, all pretty stand-up people. Awesome. So... Is there anything specifically different that you
2: did on that trip than your first trip? Let's consult the notes.
1: Um, (laughs) What did you learn? and How did you apply it? So, you know, because I was alone, there were a lot of little things that I did different. You know, one of them was I I ended up having to carry a lot more gear on the second trip than the first because... You weren't sharing anything. Uh, right, we're not sharing anything. My, you know, my cousin was able to carry a lot of the tools to work on a bike. Um, I now had to do that. I carried one of those um, mountain safety research water pumps for this because people had told me that finding access to clean water might be an issue in the Southwest. So I, I, in addition to bringing the huge bladder, which I always kept topped up, I kept a pump. I never ended up having to use it, which I'm grateful for. It was a proper um, water
0: pump. It was nothing like a Sawyer or anything.
1: No, it no, it wasn't. What does a Sawyer look like? Tell me what a Sawyer, Sawyer
0: squeezes like. about. Yay, big.
1: Okay, this this is a little bigger, and it had like a handle on it. Where what you would do is you would submerge a you would submerge a hose end into a thing of water. Yep, and you know do this motion, and you would <laughs> for fill those the who can't. Bit.
0: See this, which is everyone. We are making hand motions here. Right. The Sawyer squeeze is about six to seven inches long and your pump I don't know. <laughs> I got I got it here
2: somewhere, oh, yes. visually
1: visual it won't make a difference to people listening. Um, we
2: can we recommend please. you may want to consider switching over to a Sawyer squeeze. It does the same thing as those pumps. but it weighs far less and it costs much less too it costs much less you could put about ten thousand gallons through it unless it freezes and the rings pop um and it attaches to a smart water bottle or it comes with stupid bags that you should just throw away so (laughs) you may if when you do your next trip um you could save some weight you may want to consider
1: i will make a note of this yes but but yeah, it was, it was a lot of it was a lot of things like that. Uh, having to carry a bit more gear because we weren't sharing anything. One of the one of the big changes was because I was alone and because these were the shorter and darker days. I had to be a lot more disciplined about mm-hmm. getting on the bike early oh,
0: that's and right. mm. It was wintertime, and
1: I would say most most days I tried to get up either at dawn. Or about thirty to forty minutes before dawn, so by the time the sun came up, um, you were rolling. I was I was able to start at, at packing up the tent. I would usually okay. make my own. I would usually make my own breakfast, and I and I use a I use a spirit burner, not one of those um, like white gas stoves. And what's nice is you can burn anything in them, but they don't boil water fast. That's probably something I would change going into the next trip. But it's again. You know, I get my money's worth out of it. Okay. So, so you
2: have a lot of versatility because you could burn white gas, you could burn kerosene, you can, as long as you clean your tank, you can
1: burn anything in that, right? Gasoline, I can. I, I mean, if it burns, I can just alcohol stick in it. Yeah, but my the preferred fuel is, of course, just ethanol. Yes. Um. So again, I, in- I've burned that heat stuff that you get at gas stations in the Midwest <laughs> that, that real dirty and, and is poison, in a pinch, you, you'll you'll make it work. So um,
2: you have the advantage there with versatility, but again, if you're looking to save weight, um, correct. backpacking stoves, the Pocket Rocket 2. The MSR
0: makes that one.
1: Yeah. It's for light, right?
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, that was the model before the Pocket Rocket. Sounds okay. so wrong, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> it's a great name, they knew a what they were name. Doing. yes they knew what
2: they were doing uh, but you lose your versatility because you have to burn their well you don't have to burn msr canisters but you have to
1: attach the canisters to it you can't burn anything right and so it's if you can't find compressed compressed uh flammable gas canisters what do you yep. do that and that. So, so most of most of my loadout. The reason the reason that it was versatile but not necessarily light was was down to copying what my cousin did, which he was very much about. Be as versatile as you can. Don't worry about the weight. You'll be you'll be strong enough. And we don't. You know, we're not trying to win a race. Right. Um, I like that philosophy. Yeah. So so for me, the the big change because I was alone because I didn't have anybody to motivate me and because I only had a limited amount of daylight and. I don't. I don't like riding at night. And riding at night in the winter, it gets cold. In the de- I mean, the desert, the desert in the summer. For anyone who doesn't know, really, the desert year round. There's a thirty to thirty-five degree temperature swing every day. You know, the the next trip that I'm researching. If you go out to, if you go out to the Red Rock Desert in Utah, it could be 105 degrees at four o'clock in the afternoon, and 65 degrees at six o'clock
0: I have someone next to me who is nodding his head and saying absolutely yes
1: (laughs) and so the entire time that I was riding across the southwest you deal with that dramatic temperature swing I would wake up and put on full cold weather gear and by three o'clock in the afternoon I'd be wearing a t-shirt so versatility and discipline absolutely necessary particularly if you want to get anywhere and so I, I think I think that was it because I was alone because I knew I never really had anyone to bail me out. You know, I got, I got very, very serious with my planning and, and my methodology of how I would start my days, how I would end my days. And I think that the, the necessity of becoming so much more disciplined made me, not just, not just like a better bike tour or bike packer, but I think, I think it made me a better cyclist in general. And those sorts of lessons of, okay, you've got a task, you want to get it completed, this is the best way to do it. That all spills over into your, to your ordinary life when you get home. I can remember the third day of that trip was a really, really hard day because I ended up riding about 30 miles uh, into a headwind to get to a town about 80 miles outside of Del Rio, Texas, called Uvalde. And Uvalde is a little town that's about halfway between Del Rio, which is on the border of Mexico, and San Antonio. There's not a whole lot there aside from some game ranches. So I ended up finding a place to, to stay the night there. And I was looking at the, the weather, the night, that night before I went to bed and I saw it's going to rain pretty hard overnight and it's going to continue to rain until about 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm not going to ride in the dark, but it would behoove me to wake up at 6am, get dressed, make myself some breakfast stretch and be on the bike by eight because if you're willing to ride in the rain there will be a tailwind behind you, and you have okay to ride 80 miles Frankie I'm
2: sorry I have to interrupt you go ahead so you woke up at six but you weren't rolling till eight yeah so like a two hour wake up make breakfast tumbles is um, <laughs> this sounds so familiar. So, thank you very much. Without realizing it, you have validated my
0: methodology. Okay? Thank
2: you. Um, You have validated my methodology. So, as you can tell, there is probably the really only conflict we have is scheduling, because in the morning, I do exactly the same thing like a two hour You have hour to
0: do walk. you have to wash your face and you got to put moisturizer on then you got to do your nails and
2: shut face. the fuck up. <laughs> no, like you, you wake up, take your time with breakfast, pack up slowly, methodically. Is that kind of what you're saying, Frankie? Um,
1: I mean in this I I will say this, yeah. In the mornings, it's right. I definitely I, I definitely like to I definitely like to take my time. Because I want to know that I'm doing everything right. Exactly. Um, I don't want to leave anything behind. If this I'm in a rush, okay. the Rest of the morning. <laughs> in in this particular instance, I, I think you. the reason that I woke up at six to be on the bike at eight was I wanted to have time to get everything ready and then wait as long as possible for it to get as warm as it could and for the rain to 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 get as low as it could without really losing that window of having a tailwind. Okay. Um, How often did it rain on on the on the trip from Austin to California? I can distinctly remember riding in the rain 3 days. Day 4 a day in ironically the day in Arizona that I got to Yuma, which if you've ever been to Yuma Arizona, Rain is not a common occurrence there.
2: Yeah, I was gonna say because you mentioned rain, I was like, "But you were riding in the desert." Okay, that makes sense. Yeah.
1: And then there was one day of rain when I was in Ensenada, Mexico.
0: Now, speaking of Ensenada, go
1: ahead.
0: Uh, how long were you on your trip before you made it into Mexico, and how was the experience crossing the border?
1: Uh, I think I think I think I was on. I think at the point the point that I reached Mexico, I think I had been on the road five weeks. I think I had been on the road about thirty-five days, and in the in the days leading up to Mexico, because I realized I might want to stay more longer than I had initially planned, I ended up doing two centuries back to back, which is one of the coolest things I've ever done on a fully loaded bike. But I ended up, you know, making a a reservation with an Airbnb with a host who spoke fluent English and is getting her Ph.D. Um, Itzel, I hope you are listening. And thanks again for being so hospitable. Crossing the border. I didn't get a lot of sleep the night before. Uh, There's this phenomenon that happens in Southern California called the Santa Ana winds. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And just at night, you'll get uh, these really, really strong intermittent gusts. And similar to what was happening to me that scary night in Murdo, I had these gusts that were coming along every 30 to 40 seconds that were strong enough to pull my rainfly stakes out of the ground, but there was no rain, just wind. And I couldn't sleep through it because it was battering my tent.
0: Um, And not to mention having some post-traumatic stress from your Murdo experience.
1: Yeah, I'll never forget that. So that night I ended up uh, disassembling the tent and sort of laying the bike on it and then walking over to a, to a bathroom and just sprawling the tent out on the shower floor and sleeping in there. I wrote about, you know, from from where I ended up staying right out, right across the border, it was about a five-mile ride. You get to, you know, you get to the security people. You go into the, I don't even know what it's called. You go through customs. Um, I paid about $25 in pesos for a visa Uh, you can get into you can get into Mexico for for without a visa for 48 hours but I knew at this point that I was going to stay longer than that so it was about 25 dollars for a six-month visa and that was fine by me and then you get uh, at least for me on a bicycle you get to the electric reinforced steel door there's a bunch of guys with guns standing in front of it they ask me in perfect English do you have anything to declare and I thought very carefully about Am I bringing anything into Mexico that I could be arrested for? And I knew I had a knife on me and bear spray on me. I don't own a gun. I know that gun laws in a lot of other countries are very, very strict. And I thought, okay, I think you're okay. Um, and I told them, no, I'm good. And <clears throat> they hit the button and unlocked the gate. And I pushed my bike into another country. And that was, that was a pretty scary moment. What? Before you continue, what city yeah. in Mexico um, was this? So the, I was crossing the border into the into the city of Tecate, which is uh, it's a it's a it's a border town that is west of Mexicali and east of Tijuana.
2: What's the border on our side? What state and what's the closest city on our side? So our listeners can get a geographical reference. I believe it is
1: Portrero, California. Okay. And I stayed that, I stayed the night before I entered Mexico in Potrero County Park for about uh, for about twenty dollars. So I go through customs and I go through this big uh, heavy metal door into Mexico. And the Santa Ana winds were still blowing that morning. so it was very dusty, and lots of people were walking down the street wearing ski goggles because the dust was getting kicked up so high. And the first thirty minutes or so, riding was was pretty uncomfortable because um, it was noisy. Right. Cause I have all this wind behind me, and I'm, I'm, I, and I know that I'm somewhere that that I'm not. You're not a citizen. You're, the training wheels are off. You are a guest here, and I don't know. That were you the know, what were the people like? I didn't really get to know until until I left. Tacate because it was just about me pedaling and getting out of the city, and then finally I get out into the countryside, and um, about halfway to Ensenada, which it took it took probably about six hours to get there. I'm sorry um, to interrupt you again. Was there any reason you
2: just wanted to get out of the city, or just you had a, a planned route?
1: I I wanted to get to Ensenada by sundown. And okay, it was, a, it was about a sixty mile ride. And there was some elevation involved. I had to, I had to climb out of Takate, which was kind of in a valley. So as soon as I, as soon as I made it out of Takate and sort of made it over out of the bowl, over the, you know, over the mountains into sort of another beautiful green valley, the wind stopped, and I just got to look at beautiful farmland, and it was very peaceful. And about halfway there, a motorcycle rider passed me and waved, and he turned around and and rode right up to me and he didn't speak any english and i spoke very little spanish but i knew enough for him to tell for for him to understand him asking me hey, are you going to ensenada and i told him yeah i'm, I'm uh, riding there today and then he pulled his camera phone out and we both took selfies with each other and then he patted me on the back and said uh, buena suerte and, and went off on his merry way and that was my that was my first experience with uh, anyone in the country of Mexico until until I made it into Ensenada all the way to my Airbnb where I met Itzel, my host, who was so gracious. Um, traveling traveling in another country, particularly alone, was really liberating and empowering. But but it was definitely it was definitely right at the beginning an uncomfortable experience you know before before i left on this trip i told a lot of people that i that i wanted to go into mexico alone and a lot of people cautioned me not to and i know they did it with the best of intentions and really all it did was motivate me to just go even more and i think i think one of the things that i appreciated about the experience the most was that that experience of being a guest of being An outsider. Nobody looks like me. I can barely understand the native language. I was completely more so than anywhere I'd ever been at the mercy of the people around me. And they could have not they could not have been more friendly and more welcoming. There was one morning that I was riding back from. Having breakfast, because I I did kind of do one touristy thing, which was I made the decision, okay, I know the exchange rate is amazing and the cost of living is so much lower. When I get to Mexico, yes, I will be on my bicycle, but I'm going to be on real vacation until I leave. I'm not going to make any food. I'm going to go out to eat. We're going to support the economy and just buy food and uh and and i can remember i think it was the second day back i was riding through a very very busy intersection and it was nine o'clock in the morning on a weekday so everybody's going to work and um it's not hard to spot the tourist because um, i'm wearing cycling gear and i'm very very pale i don't even look southern california and this uh friendly looking guy as he's watching me pedal by him just says welcome to mexico american boy and uh i thanked him and got a great chuckle out of that it was uh the people in ensenada were very friendly and what i thought what i, what I appreciated about them was that they were forthcoming about if you don't have to spend any time because i actually went to a barber shop there and got my cut. pretty much pretty much every local i would spoken to told me you're gonna be safe here you're gonna have a great time if you don't have to spend any time in tijuana don't you know, it's 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 a it's a it's it's a bit of a raucous place because of the of the the kind of stuff that goes on there. But you're you're going to be fine while you're here.
2: And they were right. It's not so different than America in some ways. I mean, you go into some parts of some cities and it's not great. You go into
1: suburban areas and it's a lot better. Yeah, everywhere's got good places and bad. People. Yeah. But I found, on the balance. I don't think, I I don't think Mexico was different than I expected because I, I felt like where a lot of people cautioned me against going by myself from a place of fear, I knew, I knew the people there would be good and, and welcoming. And um...
2: well, what most Americans know of foreign countries, they know from popular culture and movies. So if you watch man on fire, I love Denzel Washington, but if you watch man on fire, Right. That's your image of Mexico. And yes, it is a very corrupt country. Yes, it is, you know, ruled by a lot of drug lords, but that's not the entire country. And like you said, if you stay to the countryside, you're gonna be fine. So when people are cautioning you, they're cautioning you out of what they know, and unfortunately what we know is from popular culture.
1: Yeah. No, that's that's definitely true. When I was in Big Bend. Before I left, I actually met someone else who was from New Jersey, a fellow traveler, a guy named John John Connors. I mean, you, you'll probably have to meet... I, I don't John, know, John know. Connors? I, I doubt he'll care, <laughs> um, but who knows? Maybe you want to meet his last name. Uh, I met a motorcyclist named John. John was a long-haul truck driver, born and raised in Jersey City, and I was astounded that I had run into someone who lived maybe 30 minutes away from my building in one of the most remote places in the country. John was actually uh, riding his black BMW GS adventure bike to Panama and back for the second time. And we got to, and, and he was one of those first people who, who, when I told him what I was planning on doing, riding my bike into Mexico alone, he was one of the first people who said, you're going to have a great time. You're going to love it. And he talked about seeing the cartel and seeing, you'll see the cartel, you'll see the military, you'll see the police, and pay them no interest. They will pay you yep. no interest because you're just you're just there to to see the sights and have a good time. And that was the truth. Yeah, they're um, they're not interested in you. Yep, I passed through a military checkpoint on my bicycle in in uh, in Mexico, and they could not have been less interested. I asked them if they wanted to see my passport and look at my bike. And whatever they were looking for, I could not have possibly had it. Because yep. they went be right through. I, lo- I loved my time in Baja, and I don't know when it'll happen, but I would definitely like to... Uh, there's a there's a route called the Baja Divide, um, where you ride from the... I don't know if it's a loop or it's an out-and-back. And it, it's been a while since I looked at it, but you, you basically ride from um, San Diego down to Cabo San Lucas and back. And I'd either like to do that or... Do a larger ride from the western coast of the United States down to uh, Patagonia. When you do that, we will have you back on. But we
2: are coming up on an hour almost already. Oh wow! Oh, no. Or not? Yeah, like that time just flew.
0: Should we do so- a third?
2: I I'm I will so... talk
1: about this as much as you want, guys.
2: Well, what I was going to suggest was your last trip we are actually familiar with. Um, you spent a lot of time in Shenandoah and the Appalachians. yeah. So we are familiar with that. A lot of our listeners are familiar with that. We normally end the each show with having our guest tell a tale trail, some story from their adventures that uh they think might be interesting so why don't we do that if you wouldn't mind sharing a trail tale about your final trip through uh the appalachians and through um shenandoah just give us a highlight some sort of interesting story from that trip
1: from from trip three so what do you what's juiciest to you guys because because there's 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 I mean, there's good stories. There's not so good stories. It's danger, excitement. Whatever you Nothing want. Sells. All right, let me think about those. Because those, a lot happened.
2: If you could give us a 15-second summary, point to point, how
1: many miles? Who did you go with for that trip? So, so my third tour was from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to Atlanta, Georgia. That's amazing we rode uh a couple of friends of mine joined me for uh ver- varying lengths of time but we rode the greater great allegheny passage uh rail trail um from pittsburgh to cumberland maryland and we kind of came up with uh, our own route down to the front royal northern entrance of shenandoah national park very familiar oh,
0: so done with that damn park
1: yeah, three of us. Going. Three of us rode through Shenandoah National Park together, and then I rode down the Blue Ridge Parkway by myself across the Smokies, and then down through northern Georgia to uh, uh, the city. the The city of my father's youth, Atlanta, Georgia. Excellent. Okay. So, what is
2: an interesting tale from that third tour? Um, you could talk about your friend breaking his arm or
0: Yeah, let's start with that. I'm curious. Yes. What happened?
1: So the way the trip started, there were six of us. Uh me and Quinn were reunited. He was gonna do two weeks with me. Um and then my friend Mike, my friends Mike, Corey, Matt, and Alex were all joining on. And they had never done tours before, but they had spent a lot of time getting into cycling when there was really nothing else to do during twenty twenty. And I had managed to sucker them into coming on a bike trip, um, so they all bought touring bikes and gear, and 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 we we trained pretty thoroughly. And Matt and Alex made it through the first three days, and then said, "All right, we've had enough. We're gonna we're gonna ride a little bit further on the CNO Canal Trail, and my fiance is gonna pick us up, and we're going home." Um, the CNO
0: and, Canal Trail goes. Uh, the CNO, CNO Canal um, Trail
1: goes from Harper's Washington. Ferry. To through Harper's Ferry, through Harpers Ferry all yeah. the way to Cumberland, Maryland, where it terminates is where the gap begins. Okay. So we were down to we were down to four by the time we hit the Virginia state line, and then my friend Corey, one of his knees just just gave up on him, and he was concerned that he might he might uh, be have been giving himself tendinitis. so. When we finally reached Shenandoah, it is my friend Michael, my cousin Quinn, who we've all heard about, and myself. And the first days in Shenandoah were really the first days where it felt like everything went right on the trip. We were just having a great time, beautiful views, very, very peaceful, not having to look over your shoulder, not having to ride on the white line um, or or right on the edge of the pavement. And and we... uh, we had a fantastic rest day at uh, Big Meadows Campground, which I think is, frankly, one of the best campgrounds in America. It was it was just so well-maintained, really nice bathrooms, uh, really clean. Um, what did you
2: think of, because that has been one of my dreams, uh, Skyline Dr- biking Skyline Drive, what did you think of Skyline Drive?
1: The climbs are very, very long. However, the grade I don't think is anything over 6%. And I, while I can't speak for everyone, at my level of fitness, if you needed me to ride 6% for 10 hours, I could do it. I That's could impressive. Ride a, I, I, I could ride up a 6% grade for an entire day if you asked me to. Once you get above that, you're starting to burn the candle. But the, the quality of the pavement, at least the when I was there, which was the summer of 21, was fantastic. It's ne- the, the grade is never too steep. It it, uh, it gets steeper and um, and flatter very, very gradually. So if you're good at pacing yourself on a bicycle, I think it is not unthinkable to ride a, a very large portion of it in a day. And um, we rode, obviously, in on bikes and rode from campground to campground on bikes and managed to make it work. And so this, this would have been our – we woke up in – Winchester, Virginia. We made it to Matthews Arm campground. Let's call that day one. Day two, we went from Matthews Arm to Big Meadows. Day three, we did a rest day at Big Meadows. Went for a hike. It's a good time. Didn't get I like how people. your rest days are hikes. You know, it's, it's that's that's the trip. Um, <laughs> I, maybe
2: that seems silly. Maybe that seems silly. No, people. you're using different muscle groups. It makes total sense. It's just when you're hiking, a rest day is it's a rest day in a town eating pizza
1: and at the laundromat. That's, that <laughs> makes sense. That that makes total sense. I mean, I maybe this sounds silly, but I climbed Mount Mitchell on my bike on a rest day. I climbed it a different. I climbed it in a different direction. I I didn't end up stopping up there. I didn't climb it the day that I camped on it. Um, I climbed it a few days later. I left from, uh, what's the, the hippie town? Asheville. I left from Asheville and I rode the 35 miles up to the top of Mount Mitchell. I, my bike was unloaded, so I was flying and did 70 miles and 8,000 feet of gain in one day. That was very cool. But let's get back to Mike breaking his arm. So day four, we go up to the, to the Fancy Lodge. You know, the 100-year-old fancy lodge that's right adjacent to Big Meadows. We get breakfast, and we're having a great breakfast, talking about how amazing the trip is. I mean, and it's, it's really unfortunate that Mike's going home in two or three days, but we're going to make the most of it. We're going to make it to Loft Mountain Campground, do a rest day there, go for some hikes, have a great time. And during this summer, they were doing some maintenance on the roads. And um, generally, there was some signage, but I guess there wasn't that morning. Uh, because we 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 finished our breakfast and we went back to the campsite and Quinn had already left because he wanted to do a big hike before he made it to Loft Mountain Mike and I packed up our stuff and we got on our bikes and we turned out of we turned out of the uh, the loop road onto Skyline Drive and I made it about a half a mile down the road and then I saw uh like a pull-off and I thought great this is downhill I'm gonna I'm gonna get off here and hop off the bike real quick and pull out my phone and get a, get a flyby video of Mike going by. Cause I, I really tried my best to get picture and video of my friends so that they had something to show their girlfriends, their children someday um, to just enjoy, because this might be the only time they go on an adventure. like yeah. this, But it won't be the last time I go. So I'm getting up to this pull off and I'm really excited and I start to, I start to make my way off onto the shoulder and my handlebars jerk really hard to the left, completely out of nowhere. And before I know it, I've been thrown to the ground and I'm sliding with the bike on top of me. And I slide to a stop and about a second or two goes by and I realize, okay, you didn't get knocked out and you didn't break anything. Cause if you broke any, I've, cause I've broken my thumb before. Um, so if you broke any and if you broke any bones or you lost consciousness, you, you'd probably know by now. And the next thought to me was, "Mike's behind me. I have to tell him, don't follow me onto the shoulder." And by the time I had had that thought, I could hear him hitting the ground behind me. Ooh. Mike's a really good guy. Mike's Mike's one of my closest friends, and um, he's known me for a long time. And and on the on the last episode that we spoke. I talked about the bike accident that I had had that put me in the hospital. Mike was very aware that that I had had a traumatic brain injury as a result of a bike accident. And so the moment he hit the ground, he got up having seen me not move because I was pinned under my bike. And he ran over and ripped Vixen off of me and discovered very shortly afterwards that he had broken his radius. So he pulled a a 90-pound bike off me because he thought I was dead. Uh, with a broken arm we didn't know it was broken until a couple hours later we managed to put the bikes back together enough to walk them about a half a mile back to the ranger station at the entrance to the campground and they called ems and um, eventually he got a ride to the hospital and got an x-ray and that was when he found out it was broken and mike to his credit when i told him hey listen i'll i'll throw away what i'm doing today and just come with you to the hospital he told me if you can ride, get back on the bike and ride. And I did, and I and I didn't talk about it with people much. But I had sprained my wrist in that accident, and I didn't want anyone to tell me to stop riding, so I just kept it to myself. Um, did you brace it, or I'm assuming? <clears throat> yeah, I yeah I had I had a I had like a like a mini Ace bandage with yeah. me. and I had it wrapped, and I basically did everything everything aside from change gears one handed. Yeah, For about about four or five days And then by the end of the trip My hand was back to 100% But I had a pretty sore wrist for a while I I got very, very lucky And Mike just didn't What was his recovery time? Uh, He came back and started seeing a physical therapist And he was in a... He never had to be in a cast, fortunately It was a very minor break He ended up being in a sling for about six weeks He still goes to physical therapy from time to time because uh, he came down very hard on his shoulder and that still seems to be bothering him. But um, despite all that, in the time since, we have gone on rides together and he speaks very highly of wanting to go on another tour and I'm really grateful for that.
2: Excellent. I will share this story in another episode, but shoulder injuries when you flip over... The handlebars on a bike are fairly common. Um, I have a story that I will share for another episode. A friend of mine did not end up as lucky as Mike. So I will share that later. But yeah, as horrible as it sounds, if that was going to happen, it sounds like it happened in probably one of the best spots. Um, That's a very safe area. There are Mm -hmm. helps available. There's rangers there, the whole nine yards
1: yeah, it's better that it happened in a national park very close to a ranger uh, station than out in the wilderness, bank, or which it very well could
2: have been the case. Yes, excellent. I think that is a good place to end it, guys. That was absolutely fantastic, Frankie. Um, would you like to plug your social medias, websites, yeah. any anything you got?
1: Sure. Um i don't i don't have a lot of resources as far as the trip goes right now but if you'd like to see pictures of my adventures if you'd like to talk about them tell me about your adventures you can find me on instagram at wild across america that's w-i-l-d-e across america and um, you can find pictures from all three adventures there and we can talk about cycling and um Frankie loves this stuff, your- so
0: please contact him and chat with him.
1: Please do. Uh, <laughs> this is this is my favorite thing to talk about. I'd love to talk about my adventures, your adventures, potential adventures together. Uh, I do not discriminate. Um, cool. But yeah, find me at Wild Across America on Instagram and down the road. Who knows? All right. Excellent. Thank you very much, sir. And we will
2: definitely have you back on uh, once you. you do your next trip love it. Excellent. Thank you so much, Frankie. Thanks, Frankie. Always a pleasure.
0: All right. Thank you. Good night.
2: Good night.